Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a focus on at-risk renters during the pandemic and what's next as eviction moratoriums end and civil court business slowly returns. What we really need is the federal government to step up, renew the expanded unemployment insurance, because that's allowing some people to pay rent. And we need really a rent relief program at the federal level. We are inundated with phone calls with people who are just terrified about what's about to happen with this eviction storm that's coming down the pipeline. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, Georgia surpasses 200,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases and now becomes the fifth state to do so. At this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 201,713 cases since March and the reported number of deaths, 3,984. The number of hospitalizations has reached 19,788. And of those... 3,616 are ICU admissions. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp adds his signature to a new law. It provides police officers with new legal protections. Now, House Bill 838 creates a new type of crime called bias-motivated intimidation. This applies to the death or serious injury of a police officer, firefighter, or any other emergency medical technician. The law also applies when someone causes more than $500 worth of damage to property owned by police due to, quote, actual or perceived employment as a first responder. The new crime can result in one to five years in prison and a fine up to $5,000. We should also note this measure had a lot of opposition. Finally, Atlanta Mayor Kishlands Bottoms issued several orders regarding the city's use of force policy yesterday. Now, Mayor Bottoms is ordering the city's chief operating officer to work with APD on issues such as training and de-escalation tactics. The Atlanta City Council is also considering legislation to make the Atlanta Citizens Review Board a charter-mandated board. This would strengthen the board's power. Also, an advisory council and more than 4,000 Atlantans gave their input on these plans, according to the mayor's office. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Consider this. At one point, back in June, more than 40 million were collecting jobless benefits. Here in Georgia, The Department of Labor recently released its data revealing more than 11 billion in state and federal unemployment benefits have been paid since the middle of March. For millions of households, this pandemic has greatly affected their ability to pay the rent. 
And as of the end of July, the extra unemployment benefit of $600 a week so many were receiving has ended. That also means eviction filings could skyrocket after this month. And this kicks off a series of conversations we're going to have right here on the program. So let's welcome to the program Corianne Payton Scally, Principal Research Associate in the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute. Welcome to Closer Look. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Corianne, I want to get some clarity here for our listeners, because for those renters in a property that's uh, that has a federal mortgage on, on it, there were some protections under the CARES Act. So has the eviction moratorium ended for those renters? And if not, there are some different circumstances here. Yes. So the CARES Act eviction moratoria extended up to 120 days for renters living in federally backed single family as well as multifamily properties. This would take them through the end of August. Um, But note, this covers only about 25% of all rental units Mm -hmm. in the U.S. So it gets more confusing because some state and local governments have also passed their own eviction moratoria. These have differing timelines, differing eligibility criteria, and a lot of these have already expired. So renters and landlords really need to do their homework to understand what applies to them. So... Corianne, when you hear that, and when you hear that also combined with that extra $600 a week that for so many they were needed and Congress doesn't seem to be even close to hammering out a deal, how would this potentially impact millions of renters? I think we should definitely have concerns. You know, prior to the pandemic, about 2 million families faced eviction each year to begin with. Um, And right now, we know that um, in July, renters were reporting that they were unable to make their most recent payment. In fact, about 12 and a half million renters um, stated that, and about twice as many said that they had very little to no confidence in being able to pay their rent for the month of August. You know, immediately following this conversation, we're going to hear from a Georgia State professor, Dan Immergluck. I want you to take a listen to what he said on this program back on April 1st, just in general regarding affordable rents and how the pandemic might impact that. It's crisis on top of crisis, and I don't want to belittle the COVID crisis at all. It's something totally unprecedented, but it's being layered on top of an affordable rental crisis, an affordable housing crisis that we already had. So it's just going to put a huge spike in that problem. Um, And we need to move rapidly. We need to be creative. There's some action from the federal government, very little action from the state right now, limited action from the cities. And we really need the corporate community, the foundation community, and all parts of government to really step up quickly. So, Corianne, that was just in April. It was early part of April. And for cities like Atlanta already with a housing affordability crisis, how much truth is in that statement to what the professor just said? I think he's exactly right. And I think things have gotten worse since the time that you spoke with him. Um, It's definitely true that prior to the pandemic, we were facing a huge affordability gap where rents were out of reach for people earning low wages um, as rents have gone up over the past several decades and incomes have not. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about 
what measures can be put in place, what policies can be put in place. You all write from the Urban Institute that first, let's look at extending state and local eviction moratoriums. And landlords and property owners will tell you, hey, we have bills as well, but extending this, these moratoriums, what is your suggestion there? Maybe it's for a few more months till the end of the year? The best solution is to make sure the rent gets paid. Um, moratoria are temporary solutions um, and also are necessary, uh, but the reality is that making sure the rent gets paid is what keeps families safe in their homes during this pandemic and also helps landlords to pay their bills too. Uh, the CARES Act helped uh, do this by boosting unemployment payments and providing some additional rental assistance to households that were already helped. Mm -hmm. um, but this assistance has ended right now. You also talk about if there's any way to keep housing and utilities costs down. Dissect that further for our listeners. The utilities, yes, we understand that. But then th those moratoriums, those, you know, here in, in Georgia, Georgia Power, which is one of the bigger uh, utility giants here, you know, the moratorium on disconnecting people, that has come to an end. They are, however, coming up with payment plans for people. Uh, dissect is a little further when you all talk about keeping housing and utilities costs down, how this will help. Yeah, I think the key here is just trying to find flexibilities within the existing systems and places where, um, uh, you know, where companies that are owed payments can uh, try and, and cut uh, the people who owe them a little bit of slack. Obviously, again, the best uh, solution is to make sure that these costs get paid. Um, but in the event that they can't, um, I think we're really looking to um, these folks to just try and exercise whatever flexibilities they may have to give people additional time to pay. Corianne, before we continue with some of the potential solutions you all have come up with, are you seeing any other cities or states that they have a pretty effective approach to dealing with helping their renters? Yeah, I think we've definitely seen a lot of state and local governments um, try some innovative solutions um, in their attempts to stem this crisis. Um, for example, We've seen um, state and local governments implement their own types of rental assistance programs. You know, the problem is that the resources are few and far between. They only go so far. And often those programs have become oversubscribed really quickly as people apply and take up those funds quickly. How optimistic <laughs> are you that whenever Congress can hammer something out, if they can, that because right now you look at some of the, the proposed plans, not much is included in terms of for for renters. I mean, there's a, a bit obviously a, a huge focus is on uh, PPE and small businesses and even education. Not much, so much mentioned in terms of renters, if not renters, maybe landlords. Well, my colleagues have estimated that it would take about $16 billion every month to keep vulnerable renters housed during the pandemic and landlords in business. Um, this sounds like a lot of resources, but when you take a look at other actions um, that uh, Congress has made so far to, say, help out businesses um, at the tune of about $700 billion dollars mm -hmm. already, um, you know, this doesn't seem to be quite a large amount anymore. $16 billion a month. Yes. Oh. 
You all also say if, if there could be any movement in helping renters with access to legal services, because we are at some point when the courts open back up, you have hundreds of people show up on the same day. It's very few excuses that the courts will grant in the favor of the tenant. So you all are saying renters need access to legal services here. Yes, ideally evictions are prevented, of course, but when they aren't, you know, the existing processes tend to favor landlords in many places, but tenants really need better supports and protections. In the short term, supports would include things like providing a grace period for paying rent and waiving late fees that are stacking up during this time. Might also include requiring mediation processes between landlords and tenants um, to try and work out details. Um, And also finally, the right to legal counsel, Mm -hmm. um, which is really critical to making sure that tenants know their rights and um, ensure that they're represented throughout the eviction proceedings. Finally, Corianne, my question, what does the nation's overall affordability for renters look like whenever the nation gets to the other side of this pandemic? We should certainly be concerned about how the rental market will respond to this crisis. Um, We know that small landlords particularly are really struggling right now. Um, Those who just have a few units on hand that they rely on for income, Um, We know that about one out of four of those small landlords right now have already borrowed additional resources just to continue to operate their properties and are uh, really worried about long-term sustainability. So I think we should be concerned about the availability of rental units, particularly lower cost units into Mm -hmm. the future. and uh, also the need for landlords to increase rents, um, you know, those that don't have um, federal subsidies, for example, and can do that in order to make up uh, for this, uh, this time and the losses that they uh, could experience um, unless our circumstances change. Corianne Payton Scally, Principal Research Associate in the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute. Corianne, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and we certainly hope for the best outcome for renters across the country. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we continue today's special program with the focus on evictions, as many of the moratoriums are now going to expire. However, here in the city of Atlanta, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms did issue an executive order extending a moratorium on evictions in the city during the pandemic. That's through August 31st. However, 
Understand this. The moratorium only applies to the housing and those development groups under, for example, the Atlanta Housing Authority and Fulton County and City of Atlanta Land Bank Authority and Invest in Atlanta and those other entities partner with the city. In fact, according to a report last month in Atlanta Journal-Constitution, already 6,500 evictions have been filed since mid-March, and that includes an additional 2,500 cases that were pending before the pandemic. Well, as we continue today's special program, join me now from the Urban Studies Institute of the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University, Professor Dan Immergluck. He's been a guest on this program many times, and he joins me now. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. I want to go back to your last appearance on this program back in April. Here's what you said regarding housing affordability in the Atlanta area during this pandemic. Take a listen. It's crisis on top of crisis, and I don't want to belittle the COVID crisis at all. It's something totally unprecedented, but it's being layered on top of an affordable rental crisis, an affordable housing crisis that we already had. So it's just going to put a huge spike in that problem, Um, and we need to move rapidly. We need to be creative. There's some action from the federal government, very little action from the state right now, limited action from the cities. And we really need the corporate community, the foundation community, and all parts of government to really step up quickly. Well, Professor Immergluck, how big has that spike been in this pandemic nearly four months later? Well, what we've seen uh, is the courts in Georgia still shut down. So we haven't seen evictions processed, which is a very good thing, Mm -hmm. but we have seen significant numbers of evictions filed, as you talked about, just in three counties, in Fulton, DuPage, and Gwinnett, we've seen about those 6,000 filings. Now, keep in mind, that's a much smaller number than normally we would have seen during that period. Mm -hmm. We would have seen on the order of 25 to 30,000 filings in those three counties. And the reason that they're not filing as much is because they know they can't carry the eviction through the courts. So the 6,000 that are kind of waiting to be processed as the courts reopen, and uh, you know they may reopen as early as November, but some folks actually are going to see them open earlier, depending on the mechanics. That number pales in comparison to the real kind of pent-up eviction mm-hmm. uh, kind of stockpile, because lots of landlords could have filed who didn't, but as soon as they are, we're getting closer to the time where they can file, they will file in a flood. And the courts can't handle that for one thing. So I'm really worried about how they're going to handle that flood. I worry about more rights of tenants being completely stripped. Hmm. But what we really need is the federal government to step up and renew the expanded unemployment insurance because that's allowing some people to pay rent. And we need really a rent relief program at the federal level, both to pay the arrearage that folks have faced the inability to pay rent, especially for folks who don't get unemployment insurance, which is significant, mm. 
and to help them pay going forward until the economy recovers. And Professor, when we talk about these eviction filings and whenever the courts do open up, loss of job due to the pandemic or even the death of the primary person bringing in income, that won't weigh in the favor of renters against landlords or, or properties, correct? No, it won't. It won't. There's really no forgiveness for folks who aren't able to pay. Um, and that's true in most states. If you can't pay the rent, uh, you, you pretty much are subject to eviction. And so the fundamental need is to give money to people. And even if we slow evictions and evictions are starting to be processed in some places and in a few counties around the state, they've never really stopped. But even if we slow them, it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. It also doesn't solve the problem, especially for small landlords Mm -hmm. who don't have a big corporation behind them and have to pay their operating expenses. Some of them have gotten mortgage relief if they have a federally backed loan. Mm -hmm. Um, But many of them, even if they don't have federally backed loans, they've got utilities to pay, they've got maintenance, they've got their own expenses. And at some point, you know, after a few months, they just can't make the building work. And I'm very worried about them being forced to sell to who knows whom. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk about predatory investors, private equity investors who are looking to kind of upscale buildings or in kind of poor neighborhoods, they may just walk away and let the building, you know, basically abandon the property. And we have seen that before. And while some businesses are back online, the economy is still sluggish. Not everyone is back to full-time employment. So even for those who are property owners, these small landlords, these small property owners, the plight that they're in might force them to take action, which would just compound the, the other issues, the other challenges for renters. I don't, I don't think much has been paid attention to what you just talked about. We actually did, uh, my colleagues and I did a study uh, last year, um, it was published in an academic journal that looked at evictions and multifamily properties in the metro Atlanta region. And we found one of the biggest predictors of evictions were if a building had been sold in the prior couple of years. Pretty much building turnover prompts evictions. Mm-hmm. And that means displacement, it means displacement both at the household level, but it can destabilize neighborhoods in terms of forcing many folks to have to find a new place to live. And we know forced forced moves, evictions or other kinds of forced moves, foreclosures, cause all kinds of problems to families and neighborhoods. So we don't want to see a lot of building turnover. We need a program to help landlords who agree to keep their properties affordable, but we also most importantly need money in tenants' pockets. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Georgia State University in Urban Studies Professor Dan Immergluck, and we're talking about what many analysts and scholars in this field predict, and that is the aftermath related to evictions when the courts resume. Let's focus on Atlanta for a moment, Professor, because 
those type of, of small units, smaller dwellings, private landlords, Atlanta has a lot of them. And you look at neighborhoods, well, let's go to the south, southwest or west side of Atlanta because that's where, that's where we find a lot of these. Uh, what do you predict could happen to these communities based on all that what we just talked about as relates to those small landlords just finally with building turnover or property management turnover? Well, one of my concerns is there'll be a lot of speculation, especially in lower income neighborhoods in the city or near uh, kind of major amenities like the airport, uh, near the Beltline for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the places where basically vulture investors, and that's a term that I didn't make up, that's out there, uh, are, are looking to pounce. These are folks, both larger private equity firms that have what's called dry powder money sitting in their bank accounts ready for this opportunity, but also, If you think about wealthier folks who are real estate investors, right now your bank account, if you have one, even if you have a lot of money, is earning really very little interest because interest rates are falling. So if I'm earning, you know, one or two percent on my big bank account, what am I going to do? I'm going to take some of that money and think about higher yields. And one of the ways to do that is to buy some properties, distressed properties, to go to these small landlords and say, hey, yeah, I know that building was worth uh, $5 million last year, but now that there's all these evictions and people are being put on the street or doubling up, it's probably only worth $3 million. So I'm going to take it, I'm going to, you know, help you and take it off your hands. And then the concern is, as the economy comes back, you know, we're in one of the fastest gentrifying cities in the country. Boy, I'm going to sell that building or myself, rehab it, rebuild it, and turn it into luxury units. Professor, last time you were here, and you actually mentioned it in the clip we played, you said it would take federal, state, local, and philanthropic efforts to help bring some relief. Well, look, Congress at this time is nowhere near a deal for a second round of government relief. But even still, those early proposals, they don't include much of anything specifically related to relief for renters. That's right. And it's really been incredibly disappointing. Uh, The National Low Income Housing Coalition and lots of other groups have pushed really hard for a rent relief package. We need on the order of $100 billion for six to 12 months of relief. And that now means some of that needs to go to paying back arrears. And the way you can do that is basically give that to tenants, but you can also basically require landlords to, you know, reduce the arrearage mm-hmm. to take a take a, a bit of a haircut on that so that you're not just kind of enriching landlords. But it really has been a failure of government. We can give out hundreds of billions in forgivable loans, essentially grants, to pretty much any business that asks for it, that's been most businesses. Really the bulk of small businesses have gotten direct, effectively grants from the government to help them through. And I don't begrudge that, although I think some of them probably didn't need it. Um, But we can't do a small portion of that for our lowest income, you know, households who really are desperately in need of shape, uh, in need of rental assistance. Um, And that, I think, speaks 
volumes about our priorities. Professor, when these courts do open back up, this is, you talk about a pandemic in terms of a health pandemic, housing pandemic here in Atlanta is just, it's going to be widespread. Yeah. And I, I can't get, uh, I can't get away from the, the other actor here that's done almost nothing. And that's the state of Georgia. I mean, the state of Georgia is one of the most prolific subsidizers of corporations in the country, yet has done nothing explicitly to help renters during this crisis. It, it has, in fact, the only reason we have a closure of the courts is because judges have worried about the safety of people inside in the courtrooms. If they could have set up courtrooms outside in some safe way, they, they probably would have, and we wouldn't have seen the effective moratorium. Yet most states have, have seen their governor step up and put a proactive moratorium on evictions and it continued to extend that moratorium. I, I'm no fan of the governor of Florida, but he just extended their moratorium. He didn't wait for the courts to decide, oh, can we do this safely? No, he realized that it's a public health emergency to not put people, and, and that we can't put people on the streets during that. Um, so it's been extremely disappointing to see this state government do really nothing in terms of helping folks with rental housing. One of the recommendations from the Urban Institute was, was to require or incentivize what they call negotiated repayment plans with landlords are doing this in Washington, D.C., uh, which could take the place of what they see as, quote, eviction battles progressing through the courts. If the state did intervene and incentivize in whatever the way that would be, these repayment plans with landlords, how important could that be? That would be, it, it could be extremely important. Basically, it I would call this an eviction diversion program, kind of, you know, I'm using an analogy to kind of the criminal courts diversion programs. But the idea is you could have hundreds of thousands of folks mm -hmm. across the state headed to eviction courts. There's no way that eviction courts can deal with that in the regular way, in a fair way. And so if we could set up systems that would partly incentivize landlords uh, and incentivize the courts to divert caseloads to programs where it would be known going in that the landlord would not get all of their rent back, you know, the rent mm -hmm. arrearage, but they would likely get some range back. And that would be basically mediated case by case fairly quickly, or you could create some programs that were automatic that, you know, in exchange for a grant of, you know, a few thousand dollars, the landlord would take its, you know, 50 eviction cases and say, okay, I'm going to cut the arrearage by 50%. And that would incentivize folks to pay it, to pay their arrearage if they can incentivize the landlords to say, okay, I'll take that 50% haircut and a little bit of subsidy from the state. Mm -hmm. Everybody would be better off. We've just got about a couple of minutes here, Professor. Seeing that it was bad to begin with, which is what we talked about, what does the nation's overall housing affordability landscape look like whenever we get to the other side of this pandemic? 
It's a really good question. I think it's going to be exacerbated um, because you're going to have continued economic distress. I don't see the kind of economic fallout from this crisis going away soon. Some sectors will come back fairly quickly. Other sectors will take quite a while. There'll be a lot of dislocation, meaning people without jobs still. I think we're gonna see unemployment rates be relatively high for at least another year. And that means we're gonna have continued demand on things like the Housing Choice Voucher Program, people who need uh, kind of more permanent assistance or at least semi-permanent assistance. I think we have to rethink some of those programs because right now vouchers are really designed for people who are kind of long-term poor mm -hmm. and we need programs that are really for people yeah, who are going to be poor for at least a year or two. It's gonna take a while, right? So we need to rejigger some programs. I also think we need to build more housing so we have more space for people. There was a great article in the New York Times over the last couple of days on the Bay Area and showing how overcrowding in housing mm -hmm. is really a strong indicator and really a risk factor for infectious disease. So I think we really have to, especially with the immigrant community and the lowest income sector, we have to provide more housing. And that means more support for housing from the federal government. Well, as always, bringing good information from Georgia State's Urban Studies Institute of the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies, Professor Dan Immagluck. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now, throughout today's program, our focus has been on at-risk renters during the pandemic. And what's next as these moratoriums on actual evictions and civil court business slowly returns to, well, business as usual. And so we ask, what are the resources for renters? Who's out there to help and how can they help them? Well, as we conclude today's special program, let's welcome Don Coleman, co-managing attorney at Atlanta Legal Aid, Allison Johnson, executive director of the Housing Justice League, and from the Georgia Legal Services Organization, the eviction prevention director, Susan Reef. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. I want to begin with some clarity here because I've had people actually email and they want to know, depending on the county here in Georgia, they want to know, are the courts processing evictions? There's been a lot out in the media, so I think folks are confused. So let's start there, because we know that the state Supreme Court had halted eviction proceedings, not filings, but proceedings. So let's get some clarity here so folks know where we are right now. Who wants to, to take that? I'll start if it's okay. That's the question that we're constantly trying to update, because it's a, sort of a moving target. The order that was uh, issued is pretty general. Mm -hmm. um, and you're looking at uh, what, 159 counties in Georgia. There's as many interpretations of that order um, as there are uh, jurisdictions in the state. So my office covers the five metro county areas, mm -hmm. uh, Gwinnett, DeKalb, Cobb, and Clayton, and Fulton. And we are constantly trying to stay in touch with the court to see where where they're going because I, I think 
it's a, it's a new experience for everyone. And so it's subject to change. Like some courts have not yet opened for business, mm -hmm. but are pretty close to it. And then some courts that have been doing it. I always envy um, you, Don, with five counties. At Georgia Legal Services, we deal with 154 counties, and that's like all your rural counties. Yeah. And I tell you, I think everyone's doing it slightly different. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court's order did, was it, per, in most cases, courts were not accepting filing. That was from March until maybe they would allow the landlord to file, but they wouldn't do the service because, you know, the time to respond was halted. We had courts that early on, like in June, began hearing dispossessories, making exceptions to the rules, saying that these were important, mm -hmm. that these were uh, essential cases. And so they would send out notices. So it's, you know, the Supreme Court did, you know, a wonderful job, in, but it's just hard to impose uniformity on 154 magistrate court judges who feel like they know and do know, they actually do know their communities best. Right now, what we have are most of our courts are opening back up. Mm -hmm. Filings are starting to come in and the courts are working on processing the dispossessories that had been filed in early March. Those writs are being sent out. They're hearing cases that were filed during the court closure and then they're preparing for these new filings. So, I mean, they are looking at a, at a lot. I know that looking in our... Savannah, Chatham County, right now the sheriff was, says that he has 90 writs that are ready to be executed. They're going to do 15 a day, and they started on Monday, and we're already uh, feeling the impacts of that on our telephone lines. Let me jump in for a second. Mm -hmm. So, Susan, for our listeners that may not understand the process, that's where the sheriff actually takes the notice out to the property where the renter lives, or is that where they actually can go and make sure the the renter is out? Great question. That is when they execute the writ of possession, that is when they go to the rental property with the intent to remove the tenant and their property if the tenant is still in possession. So, so let's, it's actually the put out. So let's back up a little bit now. So I'll, I'll give this question to you. So it sounds like there's a lot of confusion. So if the eviction was filed prior to the pandemic, those probably are now being heard, but then also they're processing those filings that might have been filed during the, the halt uh, with, with the courts uh, and then the new filings. That yes. are being, <laughs> the, yeah, it, it's a lot. The tsunami of new filings. Just to clarify that we cover five counties and Susan M. covered the, the balance, but the population numbers are pretty even. We have the advantage of just focusing on five counties, but still that's a handful of trying to figure out which ones are doing what. We do know that in Fulton, they are having virtual hearings if both parties agree to it. The, we know in Cobb and Clayton, they don't have the capacity for virtual hearings. And then there is the, they're still trying to figure out, they want to move forward, but they're still trying to figure out the safety aspect of it mm -hmm. as far as social distancing and, and all. Allison, how busy are you all at the Housing Justice League right now? Oh, boy. We are pretty busy. Um, we are inundated with phone calls um, with people who are just 
um, terrified about what's about to happen um, with this eviction storm that's coming down the pipeline. Um, we are trying to prepare ourselves as best as possible to respond in a way that doesn't present or create more harm to tenants um, and renters. So um, we are pretty, pretty busy. An eviction storm. Allison, let me stay with you. What questions do they have? And then now we'll get into how each of your organizations are trying to help. So, Allison, what questions do folks have and how are you able to help them? The questions that we get the most is how can we stay in our home? And how do we prevent the landlords from kicking us out illegal? Those are the two main questions um, that people have for us. And the first um, answer to the question is how do we stay in our homes? What Housing Justice League has done is provided a COVID-19 hotline where people can call in um, and have their give us information that's very confidential. Um, and we really try to work with tenants in terms of, and renters, in terms of getting them organized to stay and defend their home. And what I mean by that is to try to put in, in a position where they are able to negotiate a writ relief on their behalf in their in their apartment community. Um, and we see that as a mechanism as defending your home and staying in place. Um, the other answer that we have that people, the question that is, what can we do to stop landlords from unjustly um, kicking folks or evicting folks without um, having it a legal, uh, being a legal eviction? So what we do is we ask people, again, to call into our hotline and to walk them through the steps of the eviction process. And when people are concerned about them, themselves being illegally evicted, we have a team in place that will go out to help folks defend their homes. Now, mind you that we are in this pandemic mm-hmm. and we have to be very careful about the health dynamics that this plays as well. So when people call in to say, I'm afraid I've been getting harassed by my landlord, we have a team of folks that go out to the properties where these people are living and we try to assess and analyze the the situation as best as we can without giving legal advice Um, and we really try to negotiate on behalf and with the tenants with the landlords to not do an unjust unjust eviction and to allow the renters to remain in their homes until the court system has opened up but we really want to mitigate that issue before it even gets to the court system by allowing uh, um, the tenants and the landlords to have a conversation to negotiate a pathway where the renters are able to stay in their homes. So we we have just been <laughs> inundated with mm. illegal ways that landlords are trying to evict renters. Can you give an example of an illegal eviction? So we had someone to call in last Thursday. We had someone to call in to say, well, my landlord has been threatening me, giving me notices and calling me all times of the night, telling me that he needs me to be out of the unit because I haven't paid my rent since May. Okay. And then he called me back and said he was turning off the electricity. Okay. And this is, um, and this is, this actually happened. Um, And so she called us back to say, when I got home, my electricity was off um, because the electricity was still in the landlord's name. Um, but we all know that that that's illegal. You can't do that. Um, and so he's forced me, 
he's forcing me to move out. He says that if I'm not out, he's going to have someone to come and throw my belongings out of the place by this certain date. Um, and so I really need some help um, with this. So what we do is we, we try to talk to the landlord to let them know that this is absolutely illegal. You can't do this. Um, and then we try to negotiate a way that we can provide some resources to help this person come up with their with their rental payments. But we also want to figure out, is this happening to other people mm-hmm. in the apartment communities, which it was. Um, and so what we did was we had a real deep conversation with the landlord so that they could really understand that what they were doing was, was illegal. Um, we even had to, a, a, because the conversation was intense and, you know, it was a legal matter, we had to end up um, calling in, in in the police so the police could actually tell the landlord, you know, that mm. actually what he was doing was illegal. Wow. So those types of scenarios, people are actually in really experiencing um, it's not a joke, um, and there's too much power given to landlords, and there's not enough knowledge and information given to renters where we want to come in. Susan and Don, let me ask you all this. Is it easier, I guess, in a sense, to work with private landlords as opposed to big property, property-managed apartment complexes or what have you? Well, I think it's easier with larger complexes in some sense where most of the time the complexes have an attorney that does and handle most of their dispossessories and a lot of times a call to them can intervene and and prevent uh, improper action. But the individual, the single property landlord becomes a little bit more Hmm. challenging. that's what we see a lot at legal mm-hmm. services are the, the small landlord who doesn't have the economic resources to fall back on that a mul- large multifamily does, you know, depending on that rental payment to pay the mortgage for the property. You know, we're sympathetic to that mm-hmm. because we don't want the property to go into foreclosure either because, you know, that that jeopardizes the stock of affordable housing. Um, you know, what... I think we're all kind of waiting for now is for the rental assistance to start coming in that that the Congress has authorized and that it's been, you know, it's available. It just is starting to, you know, move down the pipeline. And what we need to make sure is that that rental assistance gets to people, you know, at the proper time. I mean, like in Chatham County, you know, they've got the 90 um, actual evictions that they're going to perform this week. They've got 390 writs of possession. They're currently in the court on the way to the sheriff, and they have 500 dispossessory cases currently pending that are that are going to be heard. Plus, the courts have now reopened for filing, and we've got the CARES Act expiring. So, in August, all the care you know, depending on what happens this week, you know, all the CARES the CARES Act protections will have will expire the 30-day notices will run out in mm-hmm. mid-august so we're going to get another flood of evictions at that point let me ask you all this can you understand someone saying well even f- for the landlords the smaller landlords who own properties and they have expenses too and 
I've gotten emails and folks say no one talks about the plight of the landlord here. But you all are saying it, hopefully that this renter's assistance will come through. Do you think there should be greater measures for landlord assistance? I mean, what's your viewpoint on that? Rental assistance is landlord assistance mm-hmm. because the emergency solutions grants money. There's a large allocation of that from Congress under CARES, the CARES Act. That money is not paid to the tenant. It's paid directly to the landlord. So when that money comes through and gets in the pipeline, it will be directly in the landlord's pocket for the rent arrearage that has occurred, you know, from March until now. So it is a a landlord benefit program. (laughs) And it's just a question of delivering that assistance. Yeah, I think for us at Housing Justice League, I mean, it is very concerning to us what happens um, with the landlords, especially with these smaller um, complexes or apartment communities, because uh, especially the ones that are naturally occurring affordable units, um, they have been able to hold down the rent as cheap as possible. But, you know, just another layer of pandemic that has just put so much pressure on them to just remain committed to those rents that folks can afford is just it's it's unbelievable so i I, and i do i do agree that that is a part of their relief as well is that when the tenants are being released from rent that's also a relief for the landlord but i think there's some deeper things and deeper thoughts that we have to think through in terms of how do we support those landlords that are really committed to keeping rents affordable for folks especially during this time the care act had the the small loan aspect of it, small business loan aspect of it, where loans could be forgiven, actually was aimed at the small business, which is a, you know, landlord tenant. Yeah, but Don, you know, you know, there was a lot of issues saying that, look, the the Mm -hmm. little business person Mm -hmm. didn't get that money. It went to some Mm -hmm. of the bigger, I mean, I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to call anybody out. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it reached many of my private landlords down in South yeah. Georgia. Yeah. yeah. The devil's in the detail, and obviously the details were a little disappointing there. Mm. Y'all, as we talk about affordable housing, and we keep hearing, look, affordable housing is at this crisis level. It was that way before the pandemic. What does the current at-risk renter face whenever we get through this or to the other side of this? I've been following the data that the Housing Plus survey puts out for Georgia, and they're saying that right now there are like over a half a million rental households that are at risk for eviction. That's that they've either missed a payment or they fear they're going to miss a payment. And that 465,000 rental households last month missed their rental payment. There, and the estimation is the, the the rental shortfall, like how much rent is essentially owed, is like $600 million. I mean, that is a huge problem. One of the things about working in 154 counties is you realize that that's a big problem. But if you look at it county by county, it's more manageable. And that's what we're doing at Legal Services. And I know um, our partners at ALAS and colleagues are doing that, too, is we're just trying to focus on the ground level helping families the courts are in a position where they want to help they want they don't want to evict a half a million people half a million households um 
And it's crucial that we do try to preserve the housing that people are in, because if it was affordable prior to COVID and the economic crisis, it will hopefully be affordable after. And if you lose your affordable housing, it's very difficult to find anywhere else that's affordable. So you've got mm-hmm. that shortage and then the increased number of people who are renters as opposed to homeowners. And then you add COVID. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's a really interesting time to be a housing attorney because like all the factors are bad. Don, your viewpoint, what does the at-risk renter now face in the future here? I think besides homelessness, it could be a downgrade in the type of housing that's available to them in the sense that one dispossessory gets on a tenant's mm-hmm. record, that mm-hmm. is going to be a, a scarlet letter for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it could not, it could be a dispossessory that was no fault of the tenant, but it's on the credit record. And so that means that they have to pay for less suitable housing and probably a little bit higher because of that eviction. So uh, it's definitely a priority to try to keep the tenants in place Mm. and to try to, uh, we've at Legal Aid have tried to establish a coalition with uh, the tenant organizations and uh, volunteer lawyer foundations in in our area to try to be prepared to deal with the onslaught, but we're probably, I, I read one article that there's probably in Metro Atlanta about 6,000 uh, evictions waiting to yeah. to hit the courts. Mm-hmm. Allison, I'll give you the last word. What does the current at-risk renter face in the future? Well, I think people have been at-risk renters for quite a while, like you said, before this pandemic. Um, but particularly right now, I think that people really face a huge decision whether or not they move their families into shelters or whether they move their families inside of another family home that's, you know, overcrowded or places that are, again, like dilapidated. It's just mind boggling to me that we haven't come up with a way to actually address this issue. Um, I think folks are just going to be on a continued uphill battle to secure housing. As hard as it is now, with before the pandemic, it is going to take all of us to come together to help figure this out. And when I say all of us, that means all entities, nonprofits, elected officials, private, pr- private corporations, everybody, tenant organizers, tenants, renters, everybody to help figure this out because it's not going to be nice and it's not going to be pretty. Allison Johnson, Executive Director of the Housing Justice League. I was also joined by Susan Reef. She's the Eviction Prevention Director with Georgia Legal Services and Don Coleman, Co-Managing Attorney at Atlanta Legal Aid. When we began this conversation, someone called this an eviction storm. We'll see what happens. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll have links to all of your organizations on our website. And if folks have questions, they can just reach out to you all. Yeah. We'll see what and happens. Thanks for calling 
you bringing this to the Thank attention you. of the public here. Absolutely. As always, we, a great service. Great service <laughs> to the public. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.